The Bible reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 28, verses 11 to 31. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after a day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we are uh, grateful for your word uh, this morning. Uh, we're grateful for the gospel. Uh, we are not ashamed of your gospel. It is your power for the salvation of everyone who believes, from the, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Uh, Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would give us the ability to understand uh, your word. So we pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would work in each of our hearts and work in our minds. 
and transform our lives so that we would be focused on Jesus and that we would love him above all else and that we would be about what you are about. And so, Lord, would you do a wonderful work here among us today? Uh, We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Will you please be seated? Uh, And as you sit, do keep your uh, bulletins uh, or your Bibles open to Acts chapter 28, uh, the very last chapter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. Uh, What a joyous month it's been for us uh, here at Christ Church to be able to look back and uh, reflect on God's goodness to us. Uh, Over the last 20 years as a church, we've been uh, celebrating all month long, and uh, after our worship gathering today, as Dan mentioned, we have a, uh, a final celebratory lunch that's uh, going to be held downstairs, uh, planned by our church council and our, our wonderful hospitality team. If you haven't been downstairs, they have done a tremendous job even just putting the space together for us. And the purpose of it is for us to, again, continue to give thanks to God for 20 years of gospel ministry here. Uh, at Christ Church. Now, what that's meant for us this month is that we've been doing a lot of looking backwards. Uh, Those of you who are here at the very beginning when the church was planted 20 years ago, you've been kind of remembering those heady days when that church was first planted here and uh, the difficulties that were involved there, the excitement that was there with it. Uh, But all of us, for however long we've been here, we we can all look back and we can think of some things that we can give thanks to God for. In fact, at the end of our assembly today, uh, before we head downstairs for lunch, we're going to have a, a short video uh, of, of testimonies from people who have been impacted through the Lord's work among us over the years. So there's lots to give thanks for as we look back. And that's, it's been really good this last month. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I wasn't here at the very beginning, so I, I, I enjoy hearing the stories of, of how, what was going on and how the church was planted. Uh, it, it's important that we know our history as a church. And so that's been fun to, to think and to, to reflect on that. But friends, even as we do that important work of looking back, uh, I also want us to try to get us to, to shift our focus just a little bit this morning and to think not just about the past and, and not even just about the present, but to also think about the future and the future mission and ministry that we have here as a church. And as we're looking this morning at this passage from Acts 28, uh, this is a wonderful passage that's meant to point us to the future because Acts 28 is both the conclusion to the book of Acts but it's also an invitation and a precursor to what's to come in the future of the history of the world. So to begin this morning, just look at the end of verse 14 there in this chapter. Right, one short sentence there at the end of verse 14. And so we came to Rome. Now in some ways that's the conclusion to this book. Because the whole book of Acts has been about leading to this destination of Rome. Uh, Over the last few weeks, I've noted multiple times that the outline for the book of Acts can be found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in which Jesus lays out his missionary plan for his disciples. Uh, Right before he ascended into heaven, Jesus promised them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, and then here's the plan, here's here's how it's all going to unfold, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And and that's exactly what we've seen unfolding in our short study of this book. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, Jesus fulfills his promise. He pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit, and so Jesus empowers his people for mission work. Peter, now empowered, then preaches his first sermon, uh, giving witness to Jesus right there in Jerusalem, a sermon which the Lord used to convict and convert thousands of people. 
Uh, that was in the year 30 AD. And then from, from there, the, the disciples continue their mission of proclamation, and the gospel message continues to spread, and the word of God increases. And it, it spreads, in fact, into the wider region of Judea and Samaria, and eventually even beyond that. And remember, we saw that one of the catalysts for that multiplying work, that, that mission of multiplication, was the reality of persecution. So in AD 31, Stephen gave a powerful sermon. Uh, the enraged crowd stoned him, making him the first Christian martyr. In around AD 34, on the road to Damascus, the Lord transformed the heart of Saul, a man who persecuted countless Christians. Saul became Paul. In AD 44, King Herod Agrippa executed the Apostle James. He had Peter arrested. And thus, as persecution increased, the believers were scattered beyond Jerusalem because of that persecution. And so much so that the center of operations for Christianity turned from Jerusalem to Antioch, where, as we saw last week, Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey, a journey that was truly a mission of multiplication, as churches multiplied and disciples multiplied and leaders multiplied. Uh, Paul went on to take a total of three missionary journeys, which collectively spanned a period of 11 years from 46 to 57 A.D., and on his final missionary journey, he traveled through Galatia, Phrygia, and Ephesus, encouraging the disciples in those cities. He then spent three months in Greece before traveling to Jerusalem, where he was arrested. He was then sent to Rome for trial, but the ship was wrecked on the island of Malta. And then, after a long ordeal, the Lord eventually brought Paul to Rome in the year 60 AD. And thus, Luke writes here in chapter 28, verse 14, and so we came to Rome. In other words, just as Jesus promised, his disciples have faithfully witnessed to Jesus in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and now, at least in first century terms, to the end of the earth. And so verse 14 is Luke's rather understated way of saying, we finally made it. Jesus empowered us for mission, a mission of proclamation, a mission of multiplication, and, and here now this mission truly is headed to the very ends of the earth. And so friends, for our purposes this morning, I think it would behoove us to, to make a few brief observations about this journey to Rome, and then to especially think through some of the implications for us as we think about our own future as a church. Uh, one observation I think to make about this journey to Rome is that it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Uh, humanly speaking, this was a difficult journey to get the gospel of Jesus all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. Uh, there were hardships and challenges all along the way, and there was opposition at almost every step. Uh, the early Christians uh, were imprisoned. They were ridiculed. Some of them were killed. Now, in this short study that we've been doing, we haven't gotten anywhere close to carefully studying every chapter, but if you were to, to, do, what you, to do that, what you'd see is that even just with the Apostle Paul, uh, for him to get to even to this point in Rome, it's been a wild ride for just the Apostle Paul. For example, if you, if you look just at verse 11 of our passage today, uh, that clues us into some of the challenges that Paul faced. Now, the three months that are mentioned there in verse 11 are referring to the fact that for the last three months, Paul has been stranded on the island of Malta. And the reason he was stranded on the island of Malta was because he just barely survived a violent storm at sea which destroyed the ship that he was sailing on. And then, before that, Paul had been through trial. After trial, after trial, his life had been plotted against. He had sat in a prison cell in Caesarea for two whole years because some Roman politician couldn't make a decision about what to do with him. 
And, and so people are trying to kill him. He's sitting in prison. And then he gets on a ship. And a journey that should take five weeks takes four months. And so, yes, he finally makes it to Rome. But none of this was easy. It took blood and sweat and tears. It took a whole lot of patience and perseverance to finally get an apostle of Jesus Christ to that great city of Rome. And so the simple lesson is we should not expect that the mission work that God has given us will be easy. It's hard. It takes patience. It takes perseverance. But a second observation is this. Difficult as it was, God was faithful in fulfilling his promise of getting the gospel to what would have been thought of in some ways as being the ends of the earth in the first century. In other words, God himself was not slowed down by these obstacles. In fact, God used these obstacles to achieve his purposes. Now, for example, just go back to what we saw last week. God did it with persecution. Persecution was God's way of getting the early Christians out of Jerusalem so that ultimately they would be scattered all over the world. Or again, just take the the case of Paul here at the end of Acts. Uh, In Paul's case, God used specific Roman policies. He used uh, secular government officials. He used ungodly religious leaders. He used terrible weather. All of it God used and he brought together to accomplish his will and fulfill his missionary purposes. And friends, we should trust that he'll do the same today. Uh, The challenges, the obstacles, the opposition we face, those are all really just tools in the Lord's hands to accomplish his purpose for us to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, God can and does use a variety of means to get his people where he wants them, uh, even though it might be very difficult for us. Uh, Here's the third observation. In this journey from Jerusalem to Rome... We should observe that this journey really was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was all about the gospel. Uh, It's from the gospel for the gospel. Uh, Back in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul defined his life's mission this way. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, it's not about me. It's not not about my journey. It's it's about Jesus. I, I live, I exist to make the wonderful grace of God in Jesus Christ known to as many people as possible. And friends, true to his word, that's exactly what Paul does when he arrives in Rome. Uh, Here he has an unrelenting focus on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Just just briefly look at what unfolds here in Acts 28. Uh, Paul arrives in Rome in uh, verse 15. He's greeted by some Christian brothers and sisters who were already there, which of course is a reminder to us that actually the gospel had already begun to to infiltrate Rome before Paul got there. Paul's arrival is a a significant step uh, to establishing the church there, but God's already been at work. And so so Paul arrives in Rome. He's greeted by some of the brothers and sisters there. Uh, And I love the fact, verse 15, that he's strengthened by that encounter. Uh, He's had a long journey. He's still under arrest. And he's got a lot of work uh, in front of him still to do. But the the sweetness of of Christian fellowship uh, gives him the courage to continue on that mission work. After Paul has then been there for three days, and he's had three days to rest and enjoy the fellowship of the church, we're told in verse 17 that he then calls together the local leaders of the Jews. Historians note that Rome had a large Jewish population at this time, estimated to be anywhere between 20 and 50,000. And so uh, Paul wants to meet with these leaders. Partly, it seems, to set the record straight. 
you know, of why he's in chains. And he's not some sort of insurrectionist who might destabilize the relationship that the Jewish people had with the Roman government. Uh, nor is he a threat to the Jewish people. In fact, his point is that he's in chains precisely because of the hope of Israel. That is, he's, he's in chains because he's fully committed to the hope of the Messiah and the resurrection life that the Messiah brings. And so he wants what's best for Israel. Now, I suspect Paul would have been surprised, verse 21, that they hadn't yet received letters from Jerusalem denouncing him. Uh, they have, however, heard plenty about Christianity, which, notice in verse 22, is regarded as a Jewish sect. And, and so they want to hear more about it from him, which, of course, Paul is very happy to do. Again, it's the whole reason he's there. And so he uses this opportunity to proclaim the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And then similarly, look, look at the final two verses of the chapter. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And friends, this is precisely what Paul has been doing throughout the book of Acts. In fact, this is a sermon that he's probably given hundreds of times because he's doing what he's always been doing, uh, expounding and testifying and, and trying to convince people about the truth of Jesus talking to them about the kingdom of God and about Jesus the King and how Jesus is, is on all the pages of the Old Testament. You know, he's there in the Law of Moses, those, those first five books of the Old Testament. And he's there in the prophets, by which he means not just the, the major and minor prophets, as we often call them, but also the historical books of the Old Testament. Those traditionally fall under the category of being prophetic writings. And, and Paul's saying Jesus is there. He's on all of it. He's on every page. And so, as Paul does throughout this book and throughout his letters, he's, he's no doubt referring to passages, perhaps like that of Exodus 12, where we read about the Passover and how the offering of blood saved people from death and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Or Isaiah 53 and the description of how God's servant would be wounded for our transgressions and, and crushed for our iniquities and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Or perhaps he's... He's pointing to Psalm 16 and the wonderful promise that God would not abandon his Holy One to the grave. Or, or, or Psalm 2, which speaks of the Messiah as the Son of God, the one to whom all the nations would be given as an inheritance. And surely Paul would have also pointed them to the fundamental Old Testament promise that the Messiah, Jesus, would be the one and only Savior for this world. That there'd be no other means for all people throughout the world to enter God's kingdom apart from Jesus. Just as the prophet Isaiah tells us, uh, speaking of the Messiah and of those who would proclaim the message of the Messiah, a verse that we've been saying actually uh, throughout the entire season of Epiphany, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Friends, this is a sermon that Paul's preached many times. And every time he's, tried, he's trying to convince people of who Jesus is and of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection, and that we therefore must respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. So friend, maybe if you're visiting here for the first time this morning, uh, this is the good news message that's, that's intended for every human being. And that includes you. Jesus is the king. And Jesus has a kingdom like no other because Jesus is the king who gave his life for us. 
He's the king who died for our sin and our shame so that we could be forgiven, so that we could spend an eternity in his glorious kingdom. I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus the king today. There's no king like him, and there's no kingdom like his kingdom. It's all about Jesus. That's Paul's message here. It's it's all about Jesus. Uh, the whole journey has been about this. This is the, the very reason for going to Rome in the first place. It's so that there can be an authoritative apostolic witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But friends, it's also critical that we see uh, that this isn't the end of the story. That's our fourth observation. It's the observation that this journey to Rome isn't the end of the mission. I think one of the things that's noteworthy about the book of Acts is the suddenness with which it ends. Uh, So verse 23, uh, Paul tries to convince them about who Jesus is. Verse 24, some are convinced, but some still don't believe. And then in verses 25 to 27, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. It really is a, a warning against them that their eyes have been blinded and their ears closed. And as a result, the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles. And so he says in verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. In other words, this message isn't stopping here. Now, this message is going out further. Which is why I think Luke, the author of this book, he ends the way he does with verses 30 and 31 there. And by the way, if you're wondering where verse 29 is, uh, we we didn't leave it out. Uh, it, It doesn't exist. If you want to know why, you can ask me afterwards. There is no verse 29. But if you look at verses 30 and 31, uh, this, is, this is kind of a sudden way to end this book. Because there almost seems to be an unfinished aspect to it. It doesn't it seem sort of unresolved. I mean, what happened to Paul? And because for the last seven chapters in this book, everything has essentially been, been building towards Paul coming to Rome. And, and now here we are. So what happened? Uh, what came next? He was supposed to stand trial. He was, he was supposed to stand before Caesar. Did, did that happen? What happened to him? I mean, those seem to be natural questions. But instead, what we find here is that actually Luke doesn't tell us. And so commentators have long noted that it's strange that Luke ends in this way. That it's almost like watching a movie or, or reading a book that has no resolution at the end of it. And so why, we might rightly ask, does Luke finish his work in this particular unresolved way? Well, friends, Luke's unresolved ending is, in fact, quite deliberate. And I think remarkably effective. Because you see, what Luke's doing here is intentionally leaving the story open-ended in order to draw us, you and I, into the conclusion of the story. In other words, his point is that that the forward march of the gospel, it's it's well underway. It began in Jerusalem. It's come all the way to Rome. It's marching on. But his point is that it's not done yet. You might say that there needs to be be an Acts 29. And that you and I are now invited into the story to continue the work of the gospel mission and thereby form the next chapter, you see. And this is what the city of Rome provided in that day. Technically, it wasn't so much that Rome was the end of the earth as it was the epicenter of the earth at that time, from which then the gospel could spread in every direction. Rome was the strategic city. And of course, as we're a church here today, uh, in the year now, 2024, in Manhattan, in New York City, I think we have to recognize the strategic nature of our own location. 
I will sometimes mention John Lennon's famous quip. If I'd lived in Roman times, I'd have lived in Rome. Where else? Today, America is the Roman Empire and New York is Rome itself. I don't know, maybe you think that's a, a typical American overstatement. I mean, there's some truth to that, though, isn't there? And if so, then the challenge for Christians is, do we see the opportunities that we have in this city simply in terms of, of business and, and entertainment and, and education? I mean, lots of opportunities when it comes to business and entertainment and education, but do we see the opportunities that the city affords only in those terms, or do we see the opportunities that New York affords as being gospel opportunities that can help us get the gospel to the end of the earth from this very strategic city? Because that's what we have to observe about what Luke's doing here. He's inviting you and I into this ongoing work of gospel mission to the end of the earth. Okay, so, so, so the story of Acts may be finished with these two verses, but the story of Jesus' work through his servants to the end of the world, that's a story that's far from finished. And so here's how I want to challenge us today. This is picking up a little bit where we left off last week. Last week I challenged us, are we going to be about maintenance or are we going to be about mission? So continuing that challenge, here's how I want to challenge us today. This mission we're on, the, this mission of, of multiplication, this mission of proclamation for which we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit is a mission that's meant to go to the very ends of the earth. And each of us has a part to play in that. And so the simple challenge is, what is that part for you? And are you playing your part? Now, maybe you are. And if so, receive this as an encouragement to keep going. But maybe you're not. And if so, receive this as a challenge to get going. Or maybe you're not sure. Maybe you haven't really thought about it before. Well, if so, then receive this as instruction for how you can begin to play your part in helping to fulfill this mission to the ends of the earth. Now, here's a little phrase that I uh, picked up and uh, adapted from some of our Anglican friends in the UK when I was over in Cambridge studying this summer. Uh, the phrase adapted is this. The gospel to New York City, gospel workers to the world. Okay, simple phrase. The gospel to New York City, gospel workers to the world. It cap captures several things. One thing it captures is that we're not just concerned about New York City, we're concerned about the whole world. It also captures the fact that we realize that it's not just about getting the gospel out there, but it's actually about getting gospel workers out there. We can't be everywhere. We need to get gospel workers out into the world to lead and to teach and to preach and to do gospel ministry. So think about it. Are you playing your part in getting the gospel to New York City? And how might we do that? Well, one way we get the gospel to New York City is through the work of personal evangelism. Right, taking the opportunity to share the gospel with those whom the Lord has put into our lives. Maybe it involves inviting unbelievers to read the Bible with you. Uh, don't forget about these blue books that we have downstairs. These are the, these word one-to-one -one books which take people through the gospel of John. These can be a great tool to, to get an unbeliever to read the Bible and to get into God's word and let God's word do its work in a person's life. So we can, we can do the work of personal evangelism as we try to get the gospel out to New York City. Uh, another way to get the gospel out to New York City is to think about, you know, maybe being part of a team that would initiate and host and lead a Christianity Explored course. Uh, we have the framework for, for putting those on, but we need people to lead those. We need people to host them. We need people to put the time and the prayer and the effort into that. Uh, it's, a, it's a class and an opportunity that people can invite their unbelieving friends to. 
Uh, you can just think of other creative ways that you might go about getting the gospel out to New York City. Uh, maybe it can be done through an ESL class. Uh, maybe there's some sort of campus outreach that you could initiate. And of course, it also takes money to get the gospel out. And so are you contributing financially to this work? And friends, understand, of course, that to get the gospel out to New York City can also mean very much getting the gospel out to the whole world. Uh, because, of course, this is a city of all nations. You know, imagine you share the gospel with someone here in New York City who's not originally from here, which is a lot of people, almost everyone, one of us, it feels like. The Lord converts that person. They then go back to their home country, and they start to tell people there in their home country about the gospel. I mean, you can have a multiplying kind of effect to the ends of the earth from this very city. So listen, we, we, have, a, we have huge gospel privileges simply by living here in this city of all, all nations. Uh, but understand that that also comes with a huge responsibility. Uh, don't, don't waste the privileges of this city. Uh, lots of great things to enjoy in this city, but don't waste the privileges of this city on yourself. Use them for the sake of the gospel. Well, how about gospel workers to the world? Are you playing your part there? Now, that might mean something quite radical, like uh, you being open to the Lord's leading to move to another country for the sake of gospel mission. Uh, you might be the gospel worker we send to the world. Uh, it could mean that for you personally. But for us collectively as a church, it should absolutely mean that we devote time and energy and resources and prayer to training future leaders in gospel ministry. Uh, so, for example, we have, I think, the beginnings of a good training scheme for ministry interns that we've begun to develop here. And in fact, that would be a good ministry over the next five years for us to continue to develop, to build out, and to fund an even fuller training scheme for gospel workers. Uh, it should also mean that we're open to how the Lord might use us to plant other churches or, or to help renew dying churches, both here in New York City and around the world. And that, too, will require partnering with and equipping more gospel workers for this work. And of course, to do any of those things, uh, we need gospel patrons. Uh, in other words, we need those Christians who have the gift of making money to understand that God has given them that gift for the sake of funding gospel ministry. We need Christians who have the gift of making money to understand that God has given them that gift for the sake of funding gospel ministry. And so maybe your part isn't necessarily to go or to train others to go. Maybe your part is to fund it. Uh, listen, that too is a vital part. Uh, that too is, is about glorifying God in that work. Uh, the simple reality is that a global gospel ministry usually doesn't happen without money. And then finally, as we participate in the work of getting gospel workers to the world, uh, let's continue to pray and to support our current missionaries. Uh, get to know them if you don't know them. Uh, get to know what their ministry is all about so you can more fully pray for them and you can maybe think of creative ways to support them, including how you might help others in the church to do the same. Okay, so this is the challenge to us as we think about the future of our ministry here as a church. The gospel to New York City, gospel workers to the world. Uh, our umbrella mission as a church is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. You can think of this as two key components under that umbrella mission. The gospel to New York City, gospel workers to the world. Because friends, the end of Acts, it's just the beginning. Which, of course, is why we as a church even exist today. Uh, it's because the story of Christianity didn't end with these final two verses. In the year 80 AD, Christianity spread from Rome to the countries of France and Tunisia. Twenty years later, the first Christians were reported in Algeria and Sri Lanka. 
By AD 150, the gospel reached Portugal and Morocco. Christianity found its way to Austria in AD 174, followed by Switzerland and Belgium. In AD 341, the gospel took stronghold of Ethiopia. Almost 200 years after that, Pope Gregory I sent Augustine of Canterbury and a team of missionaries to present-day England, and within the first year, they baptized 10,000 people. In 8635, the first Christian missionaries arrived in China. In 8740, Irish monks brought the gospel to Iceland. By 1200, the Bible was available in 22 languages. In 1491, missionaries arrived in the African Congo with the first church located in Angola. A few years later, Kenya reported its first known Christians. Meanwhile, in Spain, Pope Alexander VI wanted to send Catholic missionaries to the New World. As a result, Christopher Columbus took priests with him on his second journey to the Americas. In 1531, Franciscan Juan de Padilla started his mission work in Mexico City. By 1550, John Calvin sent French Protestants to reach the people of Brazil. In 1640, Jesuit missionaries finally reached the Caribbean, landing on the island of Martinique. Uh, the early 1700s saw the rise of the Great Awakening in America, where both George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards stirred revival throughout the colonies. And we could go on and we could go on and on until 2001, when Redeemer Presbyterian Church invites a clergyman from Sydney, Australia, to come and plant a gospel-centered Anglican church in New York City. And then in 2004, Christ Church New York City comes into formal existence. I mean, the history of what God has done throughout the history of the world is extraordinary. Uh, Looking back to our own history, you and I trace ourselves back to 120 men and women in Jerusalem in the year 30 AD, standing face to face with the resurrected Jesus Christ and him saying, you will receive power. And friends, what I've tried to say to us today is that it's our turn. And it's our turn not just as individuals, it is that, but it's also our turn as a church body. Because with each of us, somebody has seized the opportunity to share the gospel with us. You know, maybe it was your mom, maybe it was your dad, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a coworker. But, but somebody seized the opportunity with you. They prayed for you, they prayed for me, they shared the gospel with us. Somebody seized the opportunity to make much of Jesus Christ, and here we are, worshipers of the King. And now, it's our turn. It's our turn to seize any and every opportunity we might grab hold of to make much of Jesus Christ. Friends, God calls each of us into this story and mission. And sometimes it's hard. Uh, Sometimes we have to leave friends and we have to leave family behind. Uh, Sometimes we have to give up our comforts. But whether we go, whether we stay, whether we pray or offer support, we're all wrapped up in this joyful call to take what started in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Uh, We are part of the next chapter in the story. And so the question you must answer is, What part will you play? Why don't you take a few quiet moments and very specifically ask the Lord what he would have you do for his kingdom.